In the 18th century, great noble houses employed running footmen who traversed treacherous roads to scout, deliver messages, and honor their masters with their ultramarathon endurance. Can we call these running footmen the first professional runners of the modern age? That is what we will be exploring in today's episode of Footnoting History. Hello, everyone. My name is Esther, and I will be talking about the running footmen today. And to begin our discussion of what we know about these very unique servants, we're going to be first talking about the pub called the Only Running Footman, which was established sometime in the 18th century or early 19th century and still exists today. This pub is in one of the trendiest neighborhoods in London on Charles Street, and it boasts a very curious name etched on this brand new sign. Sadly, um, the illustration that was once on this sign, it's a running footman, is no longer there. The original name for the pub uh, was not the only running footman. It was the running horse, and it was a place, according to contemporary accounts, that was very popular amongst the 18th century running footmen who served England's wealthiest families. We could imagine that after a long day of service, which might have possibly involved a run along the rough roads leading into London, or perhaps a brisk trot through the busy cobblestone streets of the city, the running footmen might have had some time to kick back, relax, marinate in their libation of choice, and enjoy an evening of camaraderie and conviviality. The running horse was a fitting name, after all. I mean, they felt the day's exertions on their aching feet, their taut muscles, and sore backs. But as early as the 19th century, the running horse became the only running footman. It was changed uh, and named after its new proprietor, who was an ex-footman who had gotten out of the game and had a little money to spare and who wanted to commemorate the days, which were now long past, when running footmen were the prized servants of England's great households. The sign he erected showed an image of a footman in mid-stride, clad in a green coat and knee breeches, holding a staff, looking very sharp with a feathered cap on its head. The question I want to explore in today's podcast is whether we could rightly call running footmen the first professional runners of the modern age. Running footmen competed in formal races. They were backed by the patronage of their employers. And these running competitions were also opportunities for other men of means to place bets and gamble on their servants' running abilities, much how they would bet on horses or on cockfights. Ordinary people, men and women alike, competed in running competitions throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. But what I suppose makes the running footmen the first professional class of runners in the modern period is that they were hired and paid specifically for their endurance and talent for running. So let's take a look back at some of the very scanty evidence we have for these running footmen to discuss footmen as servants in general, why they needed to be great runners, and how their talents were used to ornament and amuse the households to which they belonged. The footman has made a comeback recently, at least in popular culture. We know from television series such as Downton Abbey that while they serve food at the tables of great lords and greet visitors in their finely pressed uniforms, they're sleeping with guests and scheming with the ladies' maid. We imagine that maybe some of these footmen really could have been up to no good, as they were generally chosen for their physiques, their youthfulness, and let's just come out and say it, their incredible hotness. Footmen were expected to be very attractive. They were expected to be at least six feet tall, possessed of shapely calves, and dressed to the nines in the finest livery. 
The footmen adorned great and large noble houses, whose lords and ladies were in the business of possessing great and large ornaments. He was a luxurious bauble that showcased a family's tremendous wealth and power to the outside world. Lots of handsome footmen meant greater prestige and even deeper pockets. If you could afford a bevy of footmen, you know you've arrived. It might be obvious why we call them footmen in the first place. You know, they were servants who served and were known to serve primarily on their feet. They're the young men who waited on you hand and foot. Footmen could be had relatively on the cheap since they were usually low-born, from what we know. And sometime in the 18th century, the footmen stopped running and started to serve food at the table. But once upon a time, footmen were also called as such because they had to run, sometimes incredible distances, to serve their masters. Sometimes for practical reasons, such as to ensure the safe passage of his carriage, but other times for entertainment and amusement. The practice of employing running footmen seems to have dated all the way back to the 15th century, and I'm sure it probably goes back even further. Running footmen ensured that carriages didn't break or get stuck on the country roads, which could be treacherous and badly maintained. But the running footmen were not only tasked to be tireless escorts that ran alongside carriages or even ahead of the carriages to receive their masters, but also as couriers who were especially quick on their feet to deliver messages in an age before post offices. Perhaps most importantly, they raced in competitions for the pleasure of their social superiors. Now, we don't have any great statistical evidence for how well and how fast some of these foot races were run, since running and walking records for men were not systematically kept until the end of the 19th century. However, one of the earliest recorded races for which we have a time and a distance involved an unnamed Irish footman who ran 12 miles in 64 minutes around the year 1738 for a pretty spectacular average of 5 minutes and 20 seconds per mile. The 18th century nobility who organized such races were gambling men, and this was sports gambling at its finest. An entry in Samuel Pepys's famous diary bore witness to the increasing popularity of foot races, those who gambled on them and the running footmen who competed in these competitions. In a diary entry from July of 1663, Samuel Pepys observed, The town talk this day is nothing but the great foot race run this day on Bonstead Downs between Lee, the Duke of Redmond's footman, and a Tyler, a famous runner. And Lee hath beat him, though the king and Duke of York, and all men almost, did bet three to four to one upon the Tyler's head. What's extraordinary to me about Pepys's observation is two things. First, that men as high up as the King of England and the Duke of York were interested and involved in gambling on foot races. Second, that the tiler, a man who made tiles for a living, had a good enough reputation as a runner to command the types of bets placed on the strength of his well-known talents, even though Lee the footman beat him in the end. Another popular account from another source tells us of Philip, the first Duke of Wharton, who lived during the early 1700s. And he was a very eager betting man, and he backed his own footman to the tune of 1,000 guineas. The race he proposed was from Woodstock in Oxfordshire to Tyburn, a total ultramarathon distance of about 65 miles. 
In 1770, another duke, the Duke of Marlborough, was said to have raced his own footman against his own carriage in a race from Windsor to London, which is roughly the length of a modern-day marathon. It was a race that the duke won by a slim margin, and according to the account, his footman died of being overfatigued and shamed by his defeat. Popular stories of great lords and their running footmen seem to be the main sources from which Victorian writers writing in the 19th century, they drew their information from all these stories, and they were looking back at this quaint practice of employing running footmen. For the most part, these 19th century writers seem to take these stories at face value, but I don't really think we should, and instead we should critique them for what they indirectly reveal about the cultures in which running footmen were employed. A story that gets repeated frequently is that of William Douglas, Duke of Queensbury, who died in 1810. He was said to be one of the last employers of running footmen, and that he seemed to have kept them on staff specifically for the business of gambling and racing. Before hiring a running footman, Queensbury would race potential candidates up and down Piccadilly while watching and timing their performances from the balcony of his London townhouse. According to popular accounts, young men considered to be strong candidates for the position were made to dress in the Duke's livery during the tryouts, so Queensbury could assess how exactly they would look while they ran. One clever fellow put on the livery and ran up Piccadilly for the Duke, who was delighted with what he saw, and he yelled from the balcony, You will do very well for me. The young man, seeing that the livery probably cost more than he would make in a year, yelled back up to Queensbury, And your livery will do very well for me right before he hightailed it out of there, never to be seen or heard of again with these expensive garments. This story sounds like it's more fiction than fact, an urban legend with roots in common folk tales about servants making fools of their rich masters. But I think it reveals how some nobles may have assessed or considered potential hires, the importance that was placed on how these young men looked to their masters, and perhaps how some of these candidates may have had to audition and to actually prove they were capable runners. Being a professional runner, a running footman, was about skill, athleticism, and appearance. How did running footmen sustain themselves over such long distances without gels or cliff bars or water packs? Well, the tavern sign that used to hang from the only running footman showed the footman carrying a cane of five to six feet in length. It was likely used not just for balance or because it looked fancy, but because it contained a small supply of wine or maybe even an egg stored in a silver ball that was fastened to the end of the cane. At about seven miles per hour, which is a quick but not entirely a punishing pace, the footmen could probably get through the run with very little, especially if they had a hearty meal before they set off and could signal the drivers of the carriages to slow down when they got tired, which apparently they did do. Since it was a general rule for carriages not to trot hard or gallop on country roads unless it was an emergency, the running footmen could probably keep up without too many difficulties. Reports of footmen running up to 60 miles per day seems entirely reasonable, especially if they were running frequently and shorter distances in the intervening days. If you think about it, the running footman had the perfect training regiment to run long distances, precisely because he was running all sorts of distances and at a variety of paces. Think about it. He was putting in long, slow miles on difficult roads that kept the carriage at a slow but even pace. He did the equivalent of interval training and strides when the carriage sped up and had time to cool off and recover when the carriages slowed down or stopped on the road. Was the running footman the first professional runner of the modern age? Perhaps he was. 
He was not only paid for being able to run long distances, but also for his ability to compete and win in races that attracted the attention of even the king himself. But I think the most significant takeaway from the history of running footmen is that they were ornamental as much as they were useful, and that the footmen embodied the extraordinary wealth of the lords that they served. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Join us next week when we'll be talking about Henry VIII and Ireland. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.